0: And so we're going to talk today about revival. Not only is chapter 7, 8, and 9 about the revival in Israel. After the wall was built, people are coming back, and there was a massive repentance in the land. But we're also going to talk about revival because Chris mentioned it. There's been a big revival down in Asbury uh, University, down in Kentucky, in uh, Wilmore, Kentucky. And what happened was about February 8th, They had a chapel service in the university. The uh, man who was speaking, it says, was given a sermon on the book of Romans, and it was not especially impressive, he said. And by the way, that train, you know what that train's always a sign of? The Lord's coming. The long, (laughs) black train. (laughs) Get ready. Anyhow. So they were having a revival starting in February 8th, In Asbury University, one person was watching online when it was beginning and it was saying, really, it wasn't that impressive. It was rather boring. There's nothing to see but people praying together, singing rather quietly or reading from the Bible. He gave a sermon about salvation and the free grace of God. and A few students came up and started repenting and they wouldn't leave. More and more students came, and then people started leaving their classrooms, and more and more students came. They stayed all night, and it kept going all week and all night. And then colleges, local colleges would bring their students, and this started February 8th and went 24 hours until the middle of last week when they said, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty clear that God wants this to end They tried to, uh, a lot of people tried to hijack it with signs and wonders and loud shouting. And the administration said, no, this is for the Asbury students, and it's a time of reflection and quiet prayer. And it never, as one person said, never got out of hand. There was a uh, person who has been writing his doctorate on revivals, and he was a graduate from Asbury College at the time, and he came to see what was going on. And he said, as I watched this revival for the whole last month, he said, it was authentic in the sense of people were repenting of their sins, they were being filled with the Holy Spirit, people were reconciling with their neighbors, so that's usually a huge one of revivals, where you ask for forgiveness to somebody you've offended. And he said, actually, there was a new renewal and commitment to the Word of God. Those are the four big things you can tell when a revival. Repentance, Holy Spirit filling, getting right with your neighbor, and a love for God's Word. He uh, said actually in Asbury College, they had a revival in the 1970s, in 1958, 1950. And so this was not necessarily something new to them, but they pray for it, all the time, I one of my professors at Moody was at the 1970 revival in Asbury, and every time we had class, he was praying for a revival. As we were talking about it, um, somebody, a couple people have asked me, "What I, what do I think about this Asbury revival today? Is it, um, is it a work of God? How do you know?" Second thing, is it a good thing or is it a fabrication? And then the third question, a lot of people said, would you like to see it happen here? No, I wouldn't want to see God work here, honestly. (laughs) Kind of, why? Why would I want that? But I was talking to Trevor about a revival. The the way you can typify revivals is you can call this what we're doing, ordinary practice of Christianity. A revival is when the extraordinary happens. So the question is, is, was this an extraordinary work of God for the last month? a unique visitation. Would I like that here? Absolutely. But I do believe if it is going to happen, it's not something we conjure. It's not like, uh, do you remember about oh, four years ago, the San Diego was having their 4th of July firework display? And they set all the fireworks off at one time. They had like almost 750,000 fireworks Went off and like, how, Jack, you were there, right? How quick did they go off? But just at one time, boom! You know, they all go off. They all went off and then it's over. You know, maybe 15 minutes? Is the revival just a one month thing or should it continue? Well, in the book of Nehemiah, it was something that changed their life and it continued. And there's some things that we can find from this to see if it's going to actually happen in our church, but more importantly, in your heart. Because that's really why we come to church. That's why we do the Lord's Table. So you can have an encounter with the living God. He's alive. Before we go into Nehemiah, I just want to start with Luke chapter 15. Because I think this is what a revival is. I think this is... uh, one of Jesus' most famous parables. You know this parable. But it has all of the criteria needed for true life change. And you'll see what I mean in a minute. In fact, this parable is Nehemiah chapter 7, 8, and 9, fleshed out in a little story. It's Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And by the way, if you need a Bible, we have some Bibles over there in the back. I'm I'm preaching out of the NIV. And uh, if you just need to get up and get a Bible, go ahead. If you want to take it home, go ahead and take it. It's all yours. So here's Luke 15, starting verse 11. Jesus told us a parable of the prodigal son. There was a man who had two sons. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, he said, How many are my father's hired servants? And they have food to spare. And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put on a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead. And he's alive again. Alive, revived, revival. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Chapter 7 of Nehemiah is the first part where they went and they squandered and they went to a faraway land and then they wanted to come back. That's chapter 7. Chapter 8 of Nehemiah is verse 17. When they come to their senses, you'll see what I mean in a second. And then really chapter 9 is their recognition that they have sinned and they want to go back home to dad. So really what is revival? It's this. It's chapter 7. It's coming home. We go to Nehemiah 7. It's all about the wall is finally built. It's finally built. They've got the doors up. They've got guards at all the doors. And verses 1 through 4 of chapter 7 said, they even have singers ready. Why singers? Because what you're going to see is revival is about celebration. Just like that story of the prodigal son. My son was dead, and now he's alive, so kill the fatted calf, because it's time to celebrate. When people come back home, it's time to celebrate. So if you look at verses 4 through 6, the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, the houses had not yet been rebuilt. If you remember, all of the people were in Babylon for 70 years, they came back to Jerusalem, they built the wall and now he's talking about how there weren't many people and in verse 6 the people started coming back and then he starts counting them so the whole chapter 7 you'll see all of the lists of the people who were returning and it says they were returning from captivity and exile look at verse 6 these are the people of the provinces who came up from the captivity of the exile. So, what is exile? It's just like the story of the prodigal son. Because of their rebellion, they went to a foreign land or they were taken to a foreign land and they were not home. Sin does this to people. Sin does this exact thing to people it takes them away and carries them far away from God. The more you sin, the farther you get from God and the less you hear his voice. It's captivity. It's exile. I read this book that said, you know what? Evangelism, we try to make evangelism an argument of ideas. If I can out-argue you, I'll get you into the kingdom. And this writer said, we we got to stop that. What we have to start looking at evangelism as is getting people homesick for their father and inviting them back home. I was talking to a fellow pastor who was They were bemoaning the cultural, what I would say, just corruption, chaos, especially when it comes to sexuality and transgenderism and all of this. In a sense, it's kind of an experimentation period in our culture where people are running from what would be traditional morals of a mom and a dad and that you are your gender and now we have unmoored ourselves or taken ourselves away and now we're doing our own thing. And sexually, America is in exile to what God wants for people. And I was talking to him, and I said, we need to keep loving them, not condemning them, loving them, hoping they'll come back because there's going to be a point in time where our country is going to have a serious issue with people being homesick for what's good and right and true and pure. They think they're having fun, but they're squandering their wealth and wild living, and it eats you alive, and deep down they know it. Some of you in here are sick of drinking, tired of having hangovers. Some of you are coming to church today because you want to you come back home to Dad. You're tired of your heart that is angry, that is bitter, that is depressed. It's interesting, they were talking about the Asbury Revival. And they said a lot of the students who were coming, they said our culture now has a lot of anxiety and depression and insecurity. And they said during the revival, a lot of the students let go of that anxiety and that depression and they asked God to forgive them. And they said they were set free. They're tired of being in exile. That's what chapter 7 is all about. Chapter 8 is basically all about, well, no more exile wandering and then you're coming home to your family. Chapter 8, look how it starts in chapter 8, verse 1. When the seventh month came and Israelites had settled in their town, so everybody's come back into the city, now they're all coming into the town, they're building their houses... All the people came together as one in the square, so they came to the middle of town. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So he brings out the book of the law, the priest Ezra. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. It's interesting how that's written. Everybody that could understand the scriptures, men, men, Women and probably teens, younger kids who could understand, they came to the square. And apparently, those who couldn't understand, they went off to some Sunday school playing a wana or something. I don't know. Nehemiah was leading a wana circle. I don't know what's going on. So it says, um, verse 3, Ezra, or verse 4, Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform, kind of like a pulpit. It's where we get pulpits. Built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood all of these, basically these priests that were helpers. I'm not going to read their names. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book, so he took the scriptures, opened the scriptures, and kind of like what we do each Sunday. He was standing above them, and as he opened it, the people all stood up. So the people stood up while he's reading it, and they stood up for about three and a half to four hours listening to it, and after he read, they all said, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Then this is interesting. Verse 7 talks about some of the Levites, those are the priests, teachers of the law. They read, they read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving the meaning so the people understood what was being read. So then they broke up in little different groups, and the teachers helped them understand. So people got ask questions. What do you mean by that? What did, they, what did David mean by that? What did Moses mean by that? And then they answered all the questions. And that's why we come here, we try to make the Bible understandable. So in my preaching, I try to take high ideas and bring them down to where we live every day. That's my objective. So you can understand this. And so in a way, this is just like the parable of the prodigal son. He went off to a far country. He's like, I just want to be home. So he's homesick. And then he gets into his right mind. When you read the scriptures, they put you into a right mind. You start thinking again. That's why in Hebrews chapter 10, actually it should be Romans 10.17. I always get that wrong. I always mix that up. It's Romans 10.17. Jerry, I do it for Jerry. Romans 10.17. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of God. When Ezra spoke the word of God, they started seeing again. And they were in their right mind. What is interesting is verse 10. Look at verse 10. Let's begin in verse 9. So they understood what was being read. Verse 9 says, Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites, who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord. Uh-oh. Holy to the Lord. Have you ever been into a holy temple? You have to walk in. And you have to, you know, do the sign of the cross. And you've got to genuflect. You've got to be very careful to not smile, and not have any, any kind of levity. Wait, let's keep reading. This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people have been weeping as they listen. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Why? Because the son was dead and he's alive. Revival is all about coming back to what God has intended for you. It's not a day to mourn. It's a day to rejoice. So you could, uh, this is really interesting. So in chapter 8, what they did is they celebrated the feast of the booths or the feast of the tabernacles. So in chapter 13, what they would do, all the heads of the families along with the priests, they gathered around Ezra. They found it written in the law that they should go out and have a festival. And they were to get branches from olive and wild olive trees, from myrtles, palms, shades, to make shelters. So they were to make tents, booths, and have a camp out for a week. And that is a festival which is to remind the people as they were in the wilderness, God was with them, camping with them, dwelling with them. So the reason we rejoice is because God is with us. The Word became flesh and he dwelled among us. Why is there joy? Because God wants to be with you. Revival's not about God beating you up. It's about God wanting to be with you. Second reason we rejoice is because we need to recognize he loves us in spite of who we are. Look at chapter 9. So chapter 9, you're going to see it's really about renewal. It's about repentance. They're going to confess their sins. But watch what happens. So on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of the Israelites' descendants had separated themselves from all the foreigners because this is a family thing. This is about coming back home. This isn't about just having an experience, seeing cool things. This is about having God as your father again. Those of the Israelites, uh, they separated. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors they stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and another quarter in confession and worshiping their God I want you to note something in verse 3 if you notice when they read the Word of God it changes them before people are in exile before people really are running from God the word of the, the word of the Lord's okay like you can memorize some verses and it's encouraging After you come back from exile and you hear the word of the Lord, it's your life. It changes you. One of the ways you can tell if somebody has really come back to God is the word becomes real. The way you can tell somebody may still be running from God is the word's okay. I mean, I read it, but eh, it really looks really nice on harlequin cards, you know especially if you get a really pretty psalm that makes you cry. But after you come back from exile, after you're done running from your sin, this becomes real. You need this. And that's what verse 3 is all about. They stood where they were, they read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day, and they spent another quarter in confession. It changed them. And here's the reason why. So look at verse 5. So the Levites said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who's from everlasting to everlasting. So they stood up. So they're going to pray. Here's their prayer. But you've got to watch it, because I want you to... So this is a devotional sermon, so I want you to think about this a second. I really think... Before you really are changed, you come to God expecting him to give you things, almost demanding. After God reveals himself to you, you will realize he has given you everything already and it's you who need the change. Watch. Here's what they say, blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessings and praise. Verse 6, and I'm going to go pretty quick, so watch because this is really important. Verse 6, you alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts. You give life to everything. Verse 7, you are the Lord God who chose Abram. Verse 8, you found Abram's heart faithful, and you made a covenant with him. Verse 9, you saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry. Verse 10, you sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, Against his officials. Verse 11, you divided the sea. Verse 12, by day you led them with the pillar of cloud by night. Verse 13, you came down from Mount Sinai. You spoke with them. Verse 14, you made known to them your holy Sabbath. Verse 15, in their hunger you gave them bread. You told them to go and take possession of land. And then verse 16, so you hear, you did this, you did this, you did this in verse 16, but... Our ancestors were arrogant, and they did not obey the command. When you get it, when you start to really get it, you realize everything you have, the air you're breathing right now, the heart that's beating, the lunch you're going to eat this afternoon, the kid that's in your house that you love, the boyfriend or girlfriend or the wife or the husband, God did all that. And we just keep expecting and expecting more and we're never happy. But when you are woke up in revival, when you realize you were at a far country and God the Father wants me back, you start saying, God, it was me that ran. I'm so sorry. Why is there joy? Because he keeps loving me in spite of my rebellion. So here you have, so verse 16, they were... Arrogant. Verse 17, they refuse to listen. And then watch what happens. But you're forgiving. Verse 18, you didn't desert them. Verse 19, because of your great compassion, you didn't abandon them. Verse 20, you gave them your good spirit. Verse 20, you did not withhold your manna. This is after they were rebellious. He's an incredibly giving God. I was thinking through this, and I was just jotting some notes. Why should joy be the byproduct of revival? Why shouldn't revival be a time that we're, you know, miserable, broken by our sin? Because repentance is not about being caught; it's about returning home. A homesick wanderer is welcome back to to home. Joy comes from understanding not only is there escape from eating with the pigs and the condemnation, not only is there escape, but the God who delivered me wants me. That's what changed me, I gotta tell you. I'd say for 23 years I saw religion as an angry old man in heaven who wanted to pound me with his fist. Rightfully so. I mean, I sinned like crazy. But then I started reading the Bible, and I saw Jesus. I saw Jesus. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. And Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who are weary. Weary of what? Sinning and heavy laden. Heavy laden with what? Guilt and shame. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And then later on, they rejected him some more, and he goes, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I long to gather you together as a hen gathers its chicks, but you would not. And from reading that, I saw the heart of God. God doesn't want to pound me. God wants to restore me. I mean, you can read that chapter 9 later, but... you just won't believe how time and time and time and time again God gave and waited and gave more and waited and forgave. And Israel rebelled. True repentance recognizes and acknowledges mercy. It's really not about us being filthy. It's about God waiting. Revival is a renewal of sight. I see not my sin, I see my rebellion. Big difference. I see that really I was the one who ran. I no longer see God's law, but I see his heart. That's what revival is all about. It's about repentance and renewal. And so what we're doing is we're going to invite you to the table. The table includes... His bread. So here's what this is. Okay, so this is is broken bread. This represents your punishment for your sin. It represents God sending Jesus to be punished for you. This is the cross. It's the cross. Then we have the cup. This cup is juice. They used to drink wine. We don't drink wine because I'd be thrown out if we drank wine because some people think wine sins. sin, so we don't drink wine. We drink juice. Juice represents the blood of Christ. It represents the blood that was shed at the cross. We like to use the word shed, not spilled. Spilled sounds like an accident. Jesus didn't spill his blood. He shed it, which means he voluntarily gave it for you. So he shed his blood for you. Why? To start a new promise of faith. The old promise was, if I, you know, if I uh, don't obey, I die. The new promise is, if I believe by faith, he's my dad forever. That's why I can pray, our father who's in heaven. Was thinking through the revival. Somebody said, What really is revival? You can look at it like this. When God sends revival in your heart, or church, but when God sends revival, the first thing before revival happens, life is a, like I'm just trudging. I'm trudging through mud. I'm just trying. I'm so tired. I'm tired of my life. God, can you just rescue me? And then he comes. And the fire happens. It could be a month could be a couple years. For me, it was two hours on Highway 44 in Ohio when God opened my eyes and all of a sudden, I'm in my right mind. After he visits you with this extraordinary visitation, you no longer trudge, you climb. You want to. You get to. Before the fire came, I have to. No. I now get to. My life's different. Some of you are trudging, like trudging. This is inviting you to stop trudging. Hand it over and let God take over. This is also a renewal that I want to keep climbing. He gave me everything, so he deserves everything. Because he's a good, good.